Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Liang Kemp, whose company Everledger uses blockchain technology to reduce the risk of fraud. This week, we talked to a computer scientist who is Chief Technology Officer of Braintree and an expert on artificial intelligence. Nature has a tremendous ability to test its solutions in parallel and incrementally check whether things are working through this testing. We don't have that kind of ability. We don't have that kind of computational power. And also, nature's had all this time to figure out down to quantum levels, because its designs are working to quantum levels right up to planetary scales, how to produce these amazing self-modifying, self-designing things. The human brain is as good as it gets. That was Peter Bentley, who came into the FT studio to talk to me about his company Braintree and how some of the claims about AI are vastly overplayed. Welcome, Peter. Now, you are the Honorary Professor of Computer Science at University College London. You're a prolific writer on computers, and you're also the Chief Technology Officer of an AI startup called Braintree. So we've got a lot to talk about. I wondered if we could start with Braintree. Could you tell us about the company, what it does? It actually began in Moscow, of all places, in 2002, started by a successful business development guy called Nikolai. And um, he decided that he was going to help some of his friends out who were complaining that their large organisations, their large businesses, were struggling. They were finding uh, the ever-increasing amounts of data a bit of an issue. And Nikolai said, uh, hey, I'll, I'll create a software company and we'll sort it out for you. And this is Nikolai Gurianov. That's right. So- Nikolai, being the ever-ambitious guy that he is, did just that and managed to create a very successful company in Moscow, which specialised in data analysis, visualisation, and in some cases a kind of business control of these large organisations from the oil industry to marketing to transport, quite a, a variety of different industries. But Nikolai noticed that the most successful solutions were when they were producing somewhat smarter software, somewhat cleverer software, and particularly merging these very disparate databases and finding clever analysis and interesting things within them. How did you meet? Well, so the political situation in Russia is a little bit tricky, as one or two people might have noticed, and Nikolai decided three or four years ago perhaps it would be a smart move to move to London. So the Moscow company was actually shut down... And around that time, three or four years ago, Nikolai came to see me. As you mentioned, I'm a professor in University College London. I've been there 20 years and I've spent that time doing various exotic things with computers, collaborating a lot with biologists and trying to understand the fundamental computation going on in biological processes, which in today's parlance is AI. We often don't call it AI, we call it biological computation or all sorts of other things. But AI being so popular, most people like me are getting snapped up by various companies. And uh, Nikolai was interesting. Nikolai came to me and, and said, hey, Peter, I have this vision, not just to make a successful company. I really want to do something significant. I want to create a, a kind of intelligence that will really benefit society. 
And I thought, well, that's interesting. And after a bit of consultancy, I decided I would uh, join the company as CTO. So can you give us an example of how you're applying AI, if it's all right to call it that in this context, (laughs) to some of the problems that you're facing at Braintree? Well, so we do tend to still deal with very large organisations. So, for example, one of the world's biggest retailers approached us with questions about their marketing efficacy. So who should they be putting promotions out to? Are they really getting any benefit from their promotions? Could they be a bit more dynamic? Could they figure out how to segment their customer base more effectively? And so, yeah, we apply various clever methods, machine learning methods, data mining, to understand their data and along the way find all sorts of interesting things that they didn't know that was in their data. That's one classic example. Another example is a massive commodity company. Commodities are feeling the crunch a little bit. The profitability is is a little bit down. They would very much like to optimise their processes. They have very complicated manufacturing processes. So we created some quite clever AI methods for scheduling within their manufacturing facilities and getting things in the right order from all the distributors, pushing them through their various manufacturing machines in the right order at the right times. Get it right, not only does it save them money and not only do the customers get the products quicker, but it saves downtime from breakages and faults in the machines. Now, you've written a history of computing, so you have a great perspective to tell us how significant are the recent breakthroughs in AI knowledge, or is it really just the application of massive data sets and improved computing power? Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? AI is as old as computers, if not older. The pioneers in computer science were interested in what does it mean to be intelligent, And even before we really had programmable computers, they were studying this question in great detail. And Claude Shannon and Alan Turing and John von Neumann, all of these people were fascinated by these questions. And so ideas of what we now call deep learning, which is very fashionable, kind of neural nets, these have been around for a very long time. However, yeah, we've got some fresh ideas, we've got some fresh algorithms, we've got some fresh ways of making them learn. But I have to say, none of that would be of any benefit at all if we didn't also have vast amounts of computing power and vast amounts of data. And actually, it's the latter, which is often one of the most important things. We have so much data that just by brute, well, I shouldn't say brute force, but by the use of clever statistics on this data, and do you want to call statistical manipulation intelligence? I don't know. But with the right statistical maths, you can figure out almost anything. You can figure out what anyone's going to say next, if you've got enough information. Now, AI has been subject to periods of massive kind of hype and expectation, and then the troughs of despair, and again, that famous AI winters. Where do you think we're in that cycle at the moment? Or do you think we've broken out of that kind of cycle? Mm, Well, I don't know. (laughs) I, I think it's a foolish person to disregard history. And clearly, we're in a a boom period. AI has never been so popular. You can see the boom and bust periods of AI even through the movie industry. Every so often, you get a lot of movies about AI. Well, look at the movie theatres at the moment. We've had a whole bunch of them. Of course, you also see the same thing through the creation of an awful lot of startups. And my goodness, aren't there a lot of startups on AI at the moment? (laughs) So um, it's clear we're in the boom period. 
what were the causal factors of those collapses in the past? Well, it's often people getting a bit carried away. So we get people who can be very famous. They can be pioneers in their own right, but they get a bit carried away. And they say things like, oh, within 10 years, we're going to have human level intelligence. And of course, it doesn't happen. And everybody gets very disappointed and all the money goes away. Or you have people creating amazing new software, making promises or amazing new hardware, saying this is a revolution. It's only going to get better now. And somehow conventional hardware or conventional software suddenly comes along and overtakes it. And people get very disappointed and say, well, AI isn't that good, is it? And so, well, the investment goes away. I should say, despite the ebbs and flow of interest, the technology and even the money behind it persists. So another definition of AI is getting computers to do complicated things that they currently can't do. And that means every time what we call AI is successful today, well, tomorrow it just becomes integrated with all of our technology. We forget it's AI. We still use it. It disappears. It just merges in with everything else. And actually, that's happened a lot. So a lot of our computer designs, programming language designs, a lot of the software we use all the time is full of what we used to call AI. And where do you get most excited about the application of AI? What do you think is going to be the most transformational effect of AI? Today? Um, well, that's a very difficult question, isn't it? There's a philosophical debate about what is true AI and what isn't. Are computers just manipulating symbols but not understanding what the symbols are? Or is there some true level of understanding? And this is the difference between symbolic processing and sub-symbolic processing. And I think where the true gains are to be made are when we start learning from both disciplines. If we can combine sub-symbolic, and if you think about it, that's what our brains are doing. So our brains are just sloshing around chemicals and firing pulses of electricity. You know, the word cat is not spelled out in C-A-T-shaped neurons anywhere. It's sub-symbolic. Somehow the symbols are made from all this sloshing and firing of stuff. But the symbolic level is also very useful. So things like deep learning and neural networks do sub-symbolic stuff. Very clever at what they do, but how do they work? They're black boxes. They're like real brains. You cannot open them up and understand where the information is. And that's a problem for safety-critical applications. So if you're relying on a neural network to understand what it sees, for example, in a self-driving car, can you prove it's always going to do what you want it to do? Probably not. Is that a problem? Quite possibly it is. So symbolic methods, they are provable. You do know what they're doing. So if you can combine the two approaches, maybe you can get a little bit of both worlds. And I think also if you combine these methods with new ways of storing information, so we're increasingly looking at graphs and networks of information and relationships between information, again, very brain-like this has all come about because of things like social media, but now we've realised, hey, retailers, customers, products, they're all networks. The amount of stuff you can get out of a network is amazing. So combine symbolic, sub-symbolic, graph networks, I think you could actually get some very interesting, brain-like, useful stuff out. 
Sorry, that's not a short answer, but I think that's a good direction to go in. Okay. Now, you were mentioning some of the safety concerns that surround AI. In its most extreme form, you have had people like Nick Bostrom worrying about superintelligence, and that has been taken up and echoed by people like Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking, or even in our podcast series by Professor Stuart Russell of Berkeley University. Now, if I summarise your views on this, I think it would be fair to say that you think they're nonsense. Um, Could you explain why? (laughs) A lot of these ideas are based on some mysterious notion that we're going to have an intelligence that will be able to modify itself and become ever more intelligent. And then it's somehow going to get out of our control. And oops-a-daisy, it's decided to wipe us out and we're all dead. Now, excuse me if I'm wrong, but isn't that the plot of the Terminator movies? And whilst I found them very entertaining, I've been working 20 years in our labs. I'm one of these guys who actually has been trying to make these computers... Not kill us all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, actually to modify themselves, to figure out how they can get more intelligent. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And guess what? It's tremendously hard. We don't know how to do it. My background is in genetic algorithms. We call it self-star. It's self-designing, self-adapting, self-developing, self-repairing. We try and get computers to do all of these things. We try and get software to do all of these things. And my goodness, it's tough. This is why I work a lot with biologists, because as I often say, if you think of biology as a technology then it is literally between 3.6 and 3.9 billion years ahead of us by current estimates from those microfossils. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, if you think about what nature has done, nature has access to unlimited resources, unlike our computers. It's got unlimited challenges, and intelligence will only exist. That's the function of intelligence, to solve challenges, So nature presents endless, diverse, complex challenges. Nature has a tremendous ability to test its solutions in parallel and incrementally check whether things are working through this testing. We don't have that kind of ability. We don't have that kind of computational power. And also nature's had all this time to figure out down to quantum levels because its designs are working to quantum levels right up to planetary scales how to produce these amazing self-modifying self-designing things the human brain is as good as it gets we can use any resources we want to we don't see our brains swelling up and getting ever more intelligent they're a little bit limited by laws of physics and computers are equally limited by laws of physics and everything else so you think we're only going to see incremental improvements in machine intelligence we're not going to see some explosive intelligence as some of the wilder theories suggest absolutely not as successful and as useful having lots of data is and having lots of computation is today underneath all of that you've got to have the right algorithms you've got to have the right structure And we fundamentally do not understand how brains work. And we've been looking a long time, and we still are. There's 
billions being spent in many research programs around the world, we fundamentally do not understand how brains process information. We don't understand how different topologies of networks of neurons should be organized to best process information. We are fumbling around like buffoons because even our best deep learning neural networks, if you compare them with the intricate design of a brain of a bumblebee or even an ant, we look pitiful. Is it right, though, always to compare intelligence to human intelligence? Are there systems of intelligence that we're developing now which are beyond our understanding? There are different ways that computers can think, if you use a very ill-advised anthropomorphic term. I I completely agree. But that's why, as you may have noticed, I didn't use humans as an example. (laughs) So what we do is we study kinds of intelligence that people might not even think of as intelligence. We consider the way the immune system works as a kind of intelligence, or the way embryos develop as a kind of intelligence, or the way genes regulate themselves in gene regulatory networks as a kind of intelligence. We look at the way swarms move. You name it, all of these different aspects have tremendous cleverness embedded in them. And typically, every one of our best solutions are usually either directly inspired from these kinds of principles or they're just accidental reproductions of these kinds of principles. But again, I have to stress, you cannot underestimate what nearly 4 billion years of experimentation carried out in parallel over millions of species across populations of sizes of billions in every possible environment, the amount of different problems that have been tackled and solved by natural evolution is breathtaking, awe-inspiring, and completely beyond our poor little heads. I heard the other day uh, Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, who was arguing, and I'm sure you would approve, that the whole idea of superintelligence was a pernicious fantasy that was stopping us from focusing on the real issues arising from AI right now, which is the application of algorithms, investing them with too much trust and faith in what they are capable of producing. I think that's completely true. Again, what I like to say is the only kind of AI that's going to kill us is the stupid AI that we trust too much. We won't be killed by cleverness. We'll be killed by something that's a little bit too stupid. What do you mean by that? Well, let's take uh, the self-driving cars. If we rush in, and you could argue we're not rushing in. Uh, Google's been spending years and years testing their vehicles for millions and millions of miles. But yeah, that's still not enough. Mostly that's been in California, where they don't get a lot of weather. The roads are very good condition. If they'd driven millions of miles in an Indian city, or maybe a European city with very windy roads, maybe they'd learn a bit more. But the technology isn't good enough to work in those yet. So the the problem is there are repercussions of these technologies. Whilst in the right conditions, in a nice, safe road, self-driving cars will work today, let's say we do use them. Isn't replacing the role of the driver only going to result in de-skilling our drivers. It's not going to increase our driving skills. It's going to decrease them. And in those rare occasions where we have to take control, because the car is saying, I've never seen an elephant on the road before. I had no idea what's going on. Please handle it. We might not even know how to drive anymore. 
An elephant's perhaps a silly example, but you understand what I mean. So this is an issue. And there's been other reports, for example, when we cross the road as pedestrians, we actually use visual cues. Is the driver looking at us? Has he seen us? If we're overtaking, we use visual cues. Are they aware of us or not? Now, in self-driving cars, where are those visual cues? So some of the self-driving car companies think that they could put what they would consider a kind of perfectly safe car on the road by 2020 and then there would be a lot of legal changes that have to be made in order to create the environment for them to operate which may take another decade do you think that's a realistic time frame or are you a lot more pessimistic about the technology i think it may well happen i think it'll keep a lot of lawyers in jobs i think it'll keep a lot of other people in jobs there's been other reports recently that are saying particularly in european countries or third world countries second world countries where let's say the road conditions are not perfect the cars are well they can't swerve around the potholes all the time what can they do all they can do is slow down if they can even see the potholes because what if there's a covering of snow or leaves so without wanting to be too cynical i always know when i'm back in the uk and i get on the train from heathrow and we apologize for the delay and you can just imagine getting in the self-driving car and we apologize for the delay the current roads are likely to contain potholes so we're limited to a maximum of 10 miles an hour do we really want to be in a society filled with de-skilled drivers crawling along at 10 miles an hour (laughs) you know what i would prefer and um i don't know why people don't talk more about this but i i like driving cars i think the car is one of the biggest inventions that gives us freedom and it's freedom of movement it gives us so why would we lessen that it's ironic that america the land of the free is pioneering this invention that will reduce our freedom and turn us into people who have to hop on the supporters of self-driving cars would say it's because we humans are terrible drivers and we kill 1.3 million people a year guess what the solution should be how about instead of de-skilling drivers how about increasing our ability to be better drivers using all these technologies with clever heads-up displays warnings of possible impacts warnings of dangerous roads ahead we could be the most informed drivers we could know everything around what's going on in our, our cars wouldn't that be a good use of ai how about letting us do the driving letting us make the decisions but letting ai assist us and in that sense ai stands for augmented intelligence you think? Well, yes, but it's the same kind of stuff, I have to say. Okay, one of the other myths that you love puncturing is the whole idea that robots are going to take all of our jobs. (laughs) Why are you so optimistic that uh, we will continue to find employment uh, in the future? uh, You know what, if you look at the reports, they don't really hold a lot of water. They've analysed the kind of skills that various jobs supposedly need and then they've analysed the kind of things that AI and robots may be able to do in the future and they've said, oh yes, all the things that AI might be good at in the future, all those jobs are going to go away. I can't see it because, you know what, we're pretty useless at making robots that actually do general tasks. They're fine at very specific tasks. You don't think there's some white-collar jobs that are now just going to get eviscerated? A lot of banking jobs, a lot of legal firms. I mean, you talk to some of the law firms and they say that they're using AI systems in order to do the machine reading of huge documents. I've had a lot of interaction with lawyers and in every interaction, no offence to you lawyers out there, but um, there's been mistakes made. I would very much like to have a more effective law system that does not produce documents full of holes. 
And if AI can help with that, great. Will it replace jobs? I don't think so. AI is like any kind of tool we've always created in the past. This is not new. This is what we do. We create tools. Since we've been able to walk on two legs, or whenever we first picked up a bit of rock, we've been inventing tools, and then when a cleverer tool comes along, all the guys expert in the old tools say, oh, no, but we can't have this. I'm really good at the flint axe, and now you've got this new thing? All our jobs are going to go away. Yeah, but we've got lots of new jobs creating the new ones. And the same thing applies to the AI technologies. There have never been so many startup companies generating jobs in AI. And you create all these different forms of AI. They need a lot of maintenance. They need a lot of regulation. They need a lot of monitoring, certification, training. The list goes on. And support as well. The recent reports are saying, if I may briefly talk about the cars again, it'll cost us billions to get our roads up to a standard where they won't be full of potholes. So there's infrastructure change necessary to support these new technologies. That You can't just introduce them straight away. There'll be a lot of stuff that has to be done. And that stuff, some people are going to have to change what they do. Lots of new jobs are going to be created. So just to understand you right, you're not disputing the fact that a lot of jobs might be changed or destroyed by these new systems of intelligence, but you're arguing that there will be, on the other side of the balance sheet, a lot of job creation. I have to say, what I'm arguing is, it's like every other thing. We're focusing on AI, but we could be focusing on a hundred other technologies. I've looked at the reports. Oh, they say, oh, it's only the PhD level people are ever going to be employed now because you've got to be so clever to use the AI. It's not true. As we develop the technologies, we make them simpler, we make them easier to use. It'll become easier and easier until anybody can use it. There's a quote I read the other day that in the future there will only be two types of jobs, those who tell the robots what to do and those who are told by the robots what to do. <laughs> what about those who have to fix the stupid robots when they go wrong? <laughs> There'll be an awful lot of them. <laughs> All right, I think we must end it there. But thank you very much, Peter. <laughs> no problem, thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.